Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Beverly Sems. Sems is included in Witch Hunt, an exhibition that presents how 16 women artists have used feminist, queer, and decolonial strategies to explore gender, power, and the global impacts of patriarchy. It's on view across two Los Angeles venues, the Hammer Museum and the Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, ICALA, through January 9th. This weekend, Sems and her partner in the Car Wash Collective, Jennifer Minitti, were scheduled to present a performance and installation with Emily Mast at the Joan Exhibition Space in downtown L.A. However, it has been postponed due to the pandemic. On the show page, we will have a link to Sems's Instagram account, which will announce the new date. Finally, in New York, Susan Inglet Gallery will show new work from Sems beginning on February 3rd. Sems's multidisciplinary work explores the body and its representation. Her work has been the subject of solo shows at the Henry Art Gallery at the University of Washington, the Tang Teaching Museum and Art Gallery at Skidmore College, New York, the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, and plenty more. On the second segment, Rubens Picturing Antiquity at the Getty Villa. But first, Beverly Sems, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens's fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens's ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Beverly Sims, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here, Tyler. I wanted to start with fabric and textiles because you've made work from and with textiles since pretty much the beginning of your career. So going back to when you were in grad school, and I guess just after, what attracted you to working with textiles? In graduate school, I used a little bit of textiles, but, you know, textiles were, my early interest in art was through my grandmother who lived with us, who made all her own clothes. My other aunts who were very involved with craft and quilting. And I loved fabric from a young age with my family history of grandmother and aunts. I kind of left it behind during grad school for the most part and then pulled it back. You know, those kind of years as you after you finish grad school or a moment to 
regroup, think about what you might really want to for, try to forget all the things you, you did in graduate school. And that's when I really jumped into fabric as a material. So why did you think you could do that? Why, you know, after that grad school reevaluation, what led you to or helped you understand that, yeah, textile would work. That was a thing. That was a path. So the first piece, the last pieces of graduate school, I was using materials that were bought or found. I was going to the scrapyard and I was using a lot of metals from the scrapyard. And those materials, I was scrunching and braiding. I would like screen, metal screen, aluminum screen. thing, And I buy these things that were very thin that had, I don't know what industrial usage. And you know, by the pound. I was making large sculptures, but I was manipulating these metals so much that they looked like fabric, except they were, except that they could scratch you and they, you know, sometimes weighed a bit too much and things like that. But I was, I started noticing at a certain point that I was going to a lot of trouble to make things look like fabric. Right as I finished grad school, like the year after I finished grad school, I had a show at PS1 and at Artist Space. This was like so, well, not exactly right after. So I finished grad school in 87. And then in 1990, I had these two project rooms. And both of them were these metal pieces that were me scrunching the hell out of, you know, aluminum screen or copper screening. And I think it was when I took down those shows that I thought that I was done with something and that I needed to do, that I was going to do something else entirely and that I was going to do something that was actually not going to cut my hands and not going to be, you know, <laughs> to like keep hauling around and I started thinking about clothing I started thinking about making something for myself that I kind of went into the world with so it was a kind of strong left turn I guess at that point certainly my classmates that I was friends with at the time kept up with couldn't quite understand what I was doing but yeah I, I kind of put it all in towards fabric at a certain point was there an art history that guided you or served as a north star or or maybe even the the you went to Yale for grad school, maybe even the Annie Albers line? You know, I would like to think I was looking at that line. I, I, you know, it was more about, you know, the Louise Bourgeois piece of her fabric pieces, of course, this picture of her standing in a, in a kind of cloak with her hands behind her back that, and there's this, this clothing, it's not really a shirt, it's not really a dress. And there's these breasty forms all over it, these lumps. It's from the, I'm not even sure what year that's from, the 80s. I was looking at quilts. There were, you know, in the early 90s, you were, I'm not sure if we were seeing the G's Ben quilts yet at that point. Kusama was, I had my studio, Elizabeth Street in, in Little Italy, and I shared the studio with my landlord, Robert Kobayashi, who was Japanese, and he knew Kusama, Kusama, and he introduced me to that work. I had another friend who was working with four, Lorraine O'Grady, and I and I, you know, started seeing that work. It was work that now seems to me like in the canon, but didn't really, you know, and I, maybe it was then, but it was new to me. So, yeah, the Lorraine O'Grady piece where she's covered in this dress that's made of gloves was really affecting to me. The, the Kusama work, you know, these black and white pictures where she's like in the woods and there's a horse and she's in a leotard and it's covered with dots. Those were the things that I was thinking about. Not so much work that it was still like in the arts, fine arts sphere, not in the craft sphere. It sounds like you were thoroughly suffused in all kinds of people interested in textiles. So it didn't have to come from the Yale experience as you were 
in New York, it was just there. And, you know, the Yale experience during those years for me, sculpture was in its own kind of building where, you know, that they don't have anymore. And there was Ursula von Reidingsvard was one of the faculty, David von Schlegel, Judy Pfaff, George Trakas, people working large, which was something important to me. Richard Serra was coming through as a visiting artist. There was a lot about, yeah, scale. There was some, certainly with Judy, the color. Those were the kind of things I, those were the kind of influences going on. It's cool. Well, I'm glad you mentioned size because one of the things your textilic, if that's a word, textilic pieces do, and, and really kind of always done, is, is claim a great, require claim a great deal of physical space. So I'm thinking of work such as Petunia from 2001, which is made out of pink nylon, chiffon, and lycra, I think and features waves and waves of all of it seemingly pooling in front of a woman seated at a chair with her, with her hands in, her, in her lap. We'll have images of all these on manpodcast.com, of course. Or from almost a decade earlier, Yellow Pool, which features, uh, I think, an eight-foot-tall black velvet woman's dress shape on a wall. Am I getting that right? It's dark blue. Oh, it's dark blue. Mm-hmm. People think it's black. And then it has organza flowing out of its wastish area like a waterfall and filling the floor in front of it. So I, from the start with these pieces, it seems like space and enormity was important to you. Why? You know, I was working in the back of um, Robert Kobiachi's space on Elizabeth, 237 Elizabeth, and I didn't have a big space, but I started having some opportunities where I could uh-huh. see that I could make a, a bigger pieces. I did a project at the Sculpture Center when it was on the Upper East Side called Red Dress, and I was able to be in there for the month of August with something they did back then, have a have an artist in residence, and you were invited to just kind of given a key for the month of August to make the work in there on site, and then the show opened in September. I had an idea for this piece that, you know, would really flow through the whole room and, and take up that much room. And that's what I made there with some other elements. But most of it was the, the red dress that hung on the back wall and pushed its way forward. I, at the time, it was based on a kind of pattern of a dress that my mother wore when she re-entered the workforce. So with these kind of uh, Barbara Bush type collars. So this is all really outdated kind of a Peter Pan collar, like a kind of a non-threatening looking collar. And then these big old shoulder pads. So kind of a, a really um, a wide dress kind of coming down to a narrow shape and then pulling across the wall, across the floor. There was, you know, it was, it was about taking up space. It was about, they had a kind of, my mother called it at the time, a passive aggressive quality. You know, there was this feeling you could step on it, but you shouldn't. You know, so it wasn't, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a Richard Sarah. It wasn't going to fall on you. It wasn't going to hurt you, but it would still, um, made you walk off to the corner of the room. This kind of scale of it became a, a metaphor for the claiming space was claiming power, claiming, claiming visibility and, and taking, thinking about the place where instead of thinking about one being smaller, i.e. like, you know, dieting, um, being polite, being, more in the background, it sort of pushed the opposite direction and and went too big. I like the way it made the whole room red, you know, that the and that continued. That happened with pink even in this huge church where it was installed, where there's an opportunity to, you know, point the lights down to it and then have that color bounce around the whole room. 
Well, speaking of that color, a lot of your work, including the ceramics, many, but not all of the ceramics we'll get to in a little bit, the color is almost as loud, often as loud as the installations are expansive. Did, does color operate for you as a similar volume plus power claiming metaphor? I guess it does. I hadn't, I don't think about it as power claiming, but well, certainly. So let's go to back to your reference to Petunia in Sons Beacon Holland in the early 2000s, right? I think. So I was given that spot, which was, you know, it was a so we're deconsecrated. It was no. It was no longer a church. It was a public space. There were other artists in the space. I was given this, but they Jan Hote, who was the curator, wanted me kind of on that altar, kind of in this forward place. And it was intense to try to think about a color that would have some resonance in that very, very strong, very beautiful architecture, and be yeah. So I guess I was thinking about it as a kind of power when we were sewing that piece. The room, it was really intense to sew. It was so bright. Like, it didn't look so bright once let we me, were in Let the me interrupt for a second. The room was so bright or the pink was so bright? Well, both, I guess. Sewing the piece in a small studio in Lower Manhattan was to be, like, completely engulfed in hot pink, fluorescent, essentially, you know, just, like, up to your ears to the point where every time you left the room, you were seeing split pea green and the room was sort of, you know, moving around a bit. But... But uh, once it was in the church, it had a kind of, you know, petunia look about it more, you know, less eye burning and a little more, I don't know, not really, not really decorative, but, um, you know, more in the normal, in the normal range of color. I think we'll be talking about more color as we go along here, because there's a lot of really big color in the work. So these huge installations you've made often feature textiles that are pooled or that re- read read as cascading in waves you know they have a particular texture almost you know kind of like the surface of the ocean what is the relationship is there a relationship between your use of that form between the waves of fabrics and the installation pieces and painted works such as helmet uh, which is in witch hunt or your recent ink and acrylics over photographs on canvas works such as Green Sun from last year, because often in those works, you're using paint or ink in kind of a wavyish way, in a, in a way that suggests kind of cascades of ink paint pooling. I mean, it is a kind of you're you're referring. It, sometimes there's a brushstroke that I'm using that you, swirls kind of has a swirl feeling, or I let the paint pool. Absolutely, like it's going to go on forever that way. Like if you had, you know, if you if, if you never had to deliver the work to the show, you'd just still be using those forms. Yeah, yeah, still swirling. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I'm sure there's a real connection, but um, exactly why why the pool shape. This is making me think about something. So the red dress, when I showed it to go to pop back there, we're at the Sculpture Center, ninety. Marion Griffiths is in charge of the Sculpture Center, and she's giving me this key, make the piece, and. I got a review in the New York Times, and it was like an amazing thing to have happen. And it came out fairly early in the show. And Roberta Smith wrote about the piece as being a like a menstrual blood roll. And, you know, this like right as there's kind of other way. I don't know what wave we're in ever of feminism, but there was, you know, the new museum. Marsha Tucker was there. There were shows like Bad Girls that came a little later than that. But 
there's something definitely in the air around feminism, around feminism that, that she was picking up on. And I had always seen Red Dress as being like a landscape. And it took me a while to, it wasn't that I wasn't identifying myself as a feminist or that I was afraid of that term, but the idea of it being a pool of blood, like I was so delighted with the review and I was so embarrassed by the fact that I seemed to have made a big pool of menstrual blood to people that I had these very complicated feelings about it that were it's funny to look back on. You know, you're someone thinking so much about landscape. That was what was on my mind, not so much this will show them I'm going to make a really big pool of blood. It was more thinking about it as a kind of landscape space with a figure in it. Most people around that time when I started saying things like that just started rolling their eyes, I think. <laughs> they weren't with me. I totally get the landscape thing. I mean, I like, you know, in the big installations, they they feel very much like that, especially because you you are often the viewer is often seeing the figure or the reference to the figure or in some works figures plural from across the other end of the piece. So there is stuff in front of you, both air, space, and the physical work itself between you and the figure, as there is in endless amounts of landscape painting. Right. I mentioned Green Sun. Works such as it are part of something you called and still call the Feminist Responsibility Project. Before we talk a little bit more about what you're doing on the surface of photographs or magazines for that work, what is the Feminist Responsibility Project and how did it start? So the Feminist Responsibility Project began, you know, officially, I'm never sure exactly when it was. I guess it started uh, at the root of it was coming up with um, acquiring, I guess I'd say, some 1990s era or before pile of pornographic magazines, kind of a lightweight porn penthouse and playboys from a neighbor who was moving to California and had this big pile of old magazines. And they were, you know, not about to, I guess, ship them off to um, California. So they were up for grabs. And I thought, I, you know, I was taking like their salad spinner and their um, their big salad bowl. And I thought I could use those too. That that sounds good. I don't know what I had in mind. They ended up in a, you know, in a shelf in the studio for a while. Then I finally thought I would draw on top of them. I drew on top of on the pages and put it away again, kind of kept coming back and pulling them out. Not really sure what on earth I was thinking I was going to do with them. And then um, at a certain point, no, I moved to a different studio. I had a little less space to, to pull out, to, you know, to do more expansive pieces. And I dug back, I dug into those magazine pages and started editing them, kind of like, I think I can fix this, was the, was the vibe. I wondered if I could keep something about them that was sensuous or sexy that I had some appreciation for and kind of pull out what I saw as the, the misogyny of them at the same time. Like if there was a place in there where I could do a correction, that that's what I was, that's, that's what was happening. I was, I was kind of fixing them. You know, after you kind of are living with these pages for a while, you're less put off by whatever the content is. It started being like, I started appreciating the art direction of the magazine pages, the, you know, the setups, like how many ways can you 
you know, there's these cliches of one of them that always got a kick out of, I always got a kick out of was car, the classic car wash. You know, two women are usually washing a car, scantily dressed or not dressed with like sponges and soap and things like that. You know, other kind of setups were all always like uh, needing to be freshly reinvented to make, keep making the pages different. But the content was so the same that I saw that the, the art direction was pushed into this place of creativity that had a lot of humor to me. But, you know, it also it came. So at a certain point, I gave the work, the title, the Feminist Responsibility Project, which was a purposefully big title for a very personal project. It was a moment that wasn't a big moment for feminism. You know, it was sort of the very beginning of those drawings was Bush years. And it was uh, a moment of kind of discouragement with the whole the state of things I cared about. So there was a certain way I thought, what if this, I'll just be over here fixing all the old porn, you guys. Yeah, come get me. I was like, this will be my, this way, this is what I can do. <laughs> that needs to be on a t-shirt stat. <laughs> <laughs> the strategy you landed upon, or a, a primary strategy you landed upon, was to obscure what someone could see in those pictures. Do you remember why, you know, so, so, so using your hand with ink or paint or, you know, whatever the, the, the medium was, or, you know, and it differed from piece to piece, your, your strategy was to obscure a viewer's view. Was that instinctive? Was there a... Was there something that got you to that as the action you would take? You know, I think there was some feeling of a kind of, could I, I was thinking like when I used to live in Little Italy, sometimes I would go run out from the studio to get a coffee and I maybe would just be wearing, like I wouldn't put a coat on and it was winter or I would have some, you know, sweatshirt or something that I would just grab and run out the door. And these little older ladies in Little Italy would would kind of hiss at me like put on a coat put on a coat like there was this whole kind of culture of like older Italian ladies there still who um who were like uh button up like they were watching over everybody like not getting a cold or something and uh there was a little bit of a feeling to me like that I was telling the models like to button up you know like I was giving them like a little bit of you know, they were like out at a party in a too flimsy dress and it became midnight and I was there with like, you know, a big shawl or something like uh, I was thinking of them. Or, but at the same time, they weren't asking for that. Then there was something where I was protecting the viewer from seeing them or just interrupting the gaze altogether, you know, for, for whatever purposes. As I was working on them, I would think of myself as a, I thought it became like a performance working on them. Like um, I channeled, you know, my religious grandmother. I was, I was kind of uh, got in like a zone where I was a censor and I was doing the work that had to be done. And sometimes as a censor, I would get mixed up and they would become more sexy than they were before, you know, by accident, sort of like I was just doing the work and that it was my job. That was my headspace. Wow. Wow. There are a couple of artists I, I think about in the context of that work as maybe having informed it. But for the life of me, I can't imagine why they would have informed it. <laughs> One is Robert Heineken and, and the other is John Baldessari. Do you recall either at the outset of the project or since them being important? Because I can't think of a reason they would be, except it seems to be there in the work. 
<laughs> right. No, it, I see that there are connections there. I mean, it's always so different to be doing it. I mean, to address pornography, it, it's just a different move if I do it. I'm in place. No, I didn't think about, I didn't even really know that work. Of course, I later, you know, got directed that way. I don't know. I was in my own private Idaho, I guess. No, like I was just, I didn't really see them as uh, going that, that to anything that much. You know, I sort of saw it as um, like a hobby or something for quite a while, like a break from other work. It was a while into it when I started thinking about maybe I wanted to, when I did want to think about integrating it, I took pictures of the I had pictures taken of the of the magazine pages and then use that to get the to get fabric printed that I thought I would make into like dresses big dresses somehow so there would be a dress with these images on it but once I did that it didn't really do it for me I didn't see any reason to to make the fabric into a dress wasn't really happening well to keep moving on topic but it was around that time that I met Jennifer Minitti, who was, I was teaching at Pratt in the sculpture department, and she was teaching, she was chair of Pratt Fashion, and she came over to the studio right as I was, like, really frustrated trying to make dresses out of this fabric. I just handed her, like, a giant bag of, of fabric. Like, she said, I said, I don't know, this isn't working, I don't know what to do with it, and she said, I do, and I just, like, left her packing with the work, like, take it I just get it out of here so that was sort of that was our beginning of forming car wash her designing clothes based on those FRP prints which we will be coming to in a, in, a, in a few minutes the approach of obscuring a photograph or a picture or a magazine or what have you that approach has stayed in your practice for you know almost 20 or so years now have you ever thought oh I'm done with this and decided to keep it? You know, I guess I'm asking, why have you decided to keep it? Why does it keep working 20 years on? You know, I'm never sure why anything keep like, I'm still interested in, you know, I occasionally make a dress piece also like there's there and I have worked in glass and then I'll come back to glass. I, you know, there's always these different parts of the work, the ceramics that I, I kind of keep circling back to so that even adding another element now and then like, uh, like fashion in a way or something, you know, it's been crucial to what I've done that I've liked to work in lots of materials that I am kind of, I don't know, impatience, not the right word, but um, that I'm always looking for some new way at, at making work and the circling back is also part of it. And while we're and speaking of circling back, you know, this, my family history was, you know, that my parents are both from little towns in the South you know, very Bible Belt kind of backgrounds, even though I grew up outside of Washington. People in my family were, on my father's side, were very, very military, very involved with law enforcement. And there was something about that in this work, too, that I was sort of, that I became the kind of porn police, you know, that I saw myself as my role of keeping everyone in line, sort of, that it was, a, that it had a public service aspect to it, the way uh, in a way. I love that. And I am feeling very lame for not being able to use words as well as you're using them. This is great. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, wh one of the things I notice working its way into the FRP works at some point are teacups and tea pitchers, teapots, tea. I don't know. I don't know my tea terminology, obviously, but, you know, we're, we're, the thing you pour the tea out of. And so I, I don't I don't know precisely when or with which body of work 
two-dimensional or three-dimensional tea time and tea time implements become of interest to you. But of course, you know, in the mid 2010s, you will begin making objects um, out of ceramic that reference teacups and tea pitchers and such. I, I guess what I'm asking is, what was your interest in tea time? And is it kind of a transition that got you into ceramics in a certain way? I'm trying to understand at that moment, I think. We keep heading back to the the all-important early 90s for me, but during those moments after I finished grad school and I was looking for a teaching job, there were, I found it, I I applied for a teaching job where I need, I would be the 3D department, which meant, you know, it's just like a little school and um, in New Jersey. And so I got this job and I was the sculpture person and I ran the ceramics department. So I was like hustling to learn ceramics because I really, really wanted this job. And I started making handmade, you know, things you make out of ceramic. So I wasn't so much on the wheel, but I liked hand building, you know, working directly with the clay. I'd done it a little with like various ants. And like I said, there was a lot of kind of, maybe I didn't say, there was plenty of craftiness going on in my, um, on my mother's side of the family. I love the feel of the clay and I, and those are the kind of things you do as a kind of person first starts, you know, when you start out in ceramic, there's, of course, there's ceramic sculpture. I liked the, so I liked the utilitarian vessels. There was certainly a connection with the dresses, I guess, you know, they were empty containers. They were symbols of kind of female form. I like building them myself and the kind of tactility and the craft is what connected the dresses with the ceramics. The ceramics took a while before I showed them to anyone. I was making them for quite a while. I guess that's also been a theme where I've kind of got a little private body of work that goes public at some point. But I, I, sh- I remember showing them for the first time at Michael Klein Gallery in the mid-90s. And they were glazed and, you know, not painted. And they were they were wonky pots. The teacup, it, it was, yeah, a kind of... Uh, Another variation on the wonky pot. In 2015, you did an entire exhibition that jumped off from Merritt Oppenheim's 1936 object, which, of course, is the fur or fur-lined teacup of, of Oppenheim's at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Your work had long engaged questions of texture and surface. What about that Oppenheim made it interesting for you to engage with? Was it the fur and that you could kind of jump off from that? You know, I just love that piece. Maybe I reconnected with it. It'd been something, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a famous, it's a seminal work. It's a work in the art history books. After doing the, working in the, with the FRP subject matter, I, I kind of had taken it as a surrealistic object, an uncanny object, before I had realized that a lot of its power was sexual. And uh, I was interested in the way, and that was my rediscovery of it. And why write that moment to address it? I don't know. It was my the sort of uh, hook that I hung my hat on for that show. A kind of, um, yeah, Merritt Oppenheim Appreciation Day show. Because one of the things you did with it is is you made a piece called Cups from 2015, which was, you know, ceramic and epoxy and, you know, who doesn't use epoxy? And fleece, which is a specific texture. And the work you made, you know, that work, Cups, is is pretty butch. It's kind of like tea made made muscular and, and, and butched up. So it, it pointed to me that I, I suspect you were interested in a couple things, both the inherent sexuality of op, within Oppenheim's object, but also, you know, 
playing with that, screwing with that. You know, fleece is kind of funny. <laughs> you know, there's also the, I mean, maybe it's the same thing as trying the more, the fabric that I had printed that Jennifer Minetti ran off with, thankfully, you know, that was trying to put some of what I had developed in the FRP into a sculptural form that didn't, that wasn't out. And I'd say that, you know, the Merritt Oppenheim appreciation show had the feeling of, you know, me trying to add, to, to look at that kind of sexuality and think about it, you know, in a sculptural context, like to add something that I was getting from the FRP and put it into the work. So that's to me is the, is the read behind the, the sort of intense tactility and uh, um, kind of loaded subject matter. One of the things your ceramic work in these years and earlier does is it's full of these these loops, almost like objects with dozens of teacup handles flaring off of them or, or teacup handle type loop shapes used to compose the ceramic object. What are those loops? How do you think of those loops? Are they related to teacups or are they related to, or do they come from somewhere else? I've always related the teacup handle, the, the excessive handles to the excessive sleeves on the dresses, that there's this way of kind of, you know, this idea of holding is exaggerated and repeated and brought to some other level. But it kind of, uh, there's a kind of embrace, I guess, with the dress pieces and the sleeves. And the, the teacup handle is like, pick me up. And then a million handles is like, you know, pick me up this way, pick me up that way. <laughs> you know, to, like um, suggest this kind of physical way that the viewer will interact with the object. To me, the dresses often, I thought, had a way that you as the viewer could picture yourself perhaps in the dress or picture uh, as always an implied body that you could think who who might be wearing that. But, you know, that there was this way that it engaged you to think about your body. And that's how the pots felt too, that that you didn't look at it as a kind of outside of you object that those handles kind of spoke to being interacted with even mentally, really, because most people aren't going to pick up the sculpture by any of those handles that probably couldn't handle it anyway. And the sleeves, you know, the the dresses often had something very both kind of comforting looking and and slightly uh, dangerous isn't quite the right word. But, you know, you didn't you look at a piece like Yellow Pool, you don't want to you might think you want to be embraced by that figure, go in there, you know, take a nap, like I mentioned earlier, or but maybe it's also not a good idea. Like you might drown in the, you know, in the pool of stuff that has a kind of quicksand look about it, you know, like a, yeah, at a certain point, maybe not a good idea or something. While we're in ceramics, I, I, I want to also talk about the works you showed at the Carnegie International three, three years ago, 2018, I think. And there, those works, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com, are, are kind of stacks of ceramic objects that recall all sorts of things. You had been stacking things in ceramic for a while by this point, for at least for at least a decade. So stacking ceramics seems to me a little bit, un- or a lot, unlike the way the textile installations work. The textile installations flow out and are low to the floor often, not always. I mean, there are some textile installations that kind of fill the room, if you will, vertically. But I was curious as to where stacking came from, why that was a move. You know, some of it was just a kind of practical, like I, I've, I've had a sort of standard size kiln, nothing huge. So I could make the parts in and, and then epoxy them together. So they're made in units, you know, that I could 
like it became, I mean, from early on, as we discussed earlier, like it became important to me that I could lift my own work and move it around. The dresses too were always in parts that were very, you know, mobile. So it was, it was a way to build work up and I was always looking for more scale. So I was trying to get them higher. I don't think I had the show at the hammer with the ones that are painted red, you know, had sh- I'd showed them at Carrie Schuss Gallery. They were, they never looked as phallic as they did in the context of the witch hunt, which part of it, but, uh, you know, they have this totemic quality, but they're kind of also bringing themselves up to your eye level, you know, so that they sort of start at the floor and move up. But they do operate a lot like the dresses. It's true. There's a textile piece you made in 2000 called Watching Her Feet, F-E-A-T, that is stacked. Um, or that ascends anyway. I don't, you know, stacked is maybe a loaded word, but, you know, that is stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff. Is there a relationship between how you built that piece up from the floor and the way you worked in ceramic stacking things? That piece was definitely inspired by ceramic. Yeah, it had this. My idea behind it was that it would be the biggest, brightest poop ever made. You know, that you'd walk into this room of, of poop. Again, like it was this moment of being rather uh, a, a kind of despondency about what was going on politically or, I don't know, personally. There was a kind of dark side to that piece that had this, the blinding color. There was a figure and that figure sat there and, you know, watched their stuff, watched their big, big, watch the big shit. But yeah, it was kind of an outlier piece, that one, but definitely inspired by, you know, just coil of clay and thinking about ceramic. The last question, when you're asking about the Carnegie, those pieces, there was 12 ceramic, there were 12 ceramics of these stacks in the hallway as you, it was part of my space, but it was the entry to the gallery where I was. And I saw that those pieces very much like sentries or, you know, um, something like the the guards at um, Buckingham Palace with the you know, tall hats, like they were kind of meant to kind of be on either side, directing you into the space, kind of creating a, what, like a, the kind of, um, what's the word for how that's done architecturally and like a processional or something or like a processional, like a freeze. Yeah. Something that leads you into, into an apse almost. I'm sure there's a word for that too. And I don't know it. Right. Because as I've thought about those pieces, so many of them recall Peter Volko's shapes to me. Were they a conscious engagement with, with him? I just loved Peter Volko's. I love that work. I love the show that was at Missy Martin Design. I did know about his work early as a visiting artist when I went to Skellegan and he came that summer and he was, it was insane. He was just such a, a wild man. It was, you know, later in his life. But the way he worked and the kind of confidence and he was just something, really something. He came with a kind of crew of people and a pickup truck and they they landed, they unloaded all this clay, all this materials, the wheels. And then he just, you know, got to work and did a kind of demonstration, super, super physical, super macho, but also really inspiring. And yeah, I loved his work. I love the looseness with which he worked with clay, which isn't always, and the way he pulled it into the realm of, I guess, fine art, you know, out of any kind of craft place and into this wild zone. They're totally timeless. I mean, when I see one in a, in a, in a museum, I'm, I am always amazed at the date because it feels so present. Right. Let's wrap up with what you're doing this weekend. What is Pool, which you're presenting this weekend at an exhibition and performance space in downtown Los Angeles called Joan? And what will Pool include? So Pool is 
going to show it. We're going to have a performance and then an exhibition that stays up for a month afterwards. It's uh, time to be um, the closing weekend of the Witch Hunt show, so Witch Hunt affiliated. It's going to be, so the performance end of it is a collaboration between Car Wash. Car Wash is me and Jennifer Minetti and uh, fashion designer Jennifer Minetti. We are collaborating with LA-based artist Emily Mast, who uh, does a lot of work with dance and so we're having a kind of fashion show dance performance, and I'm making a pool of out of fabric that's in the, going to be in the center of the room between t- wrapping around two columns that in the kind of warehouse space of Joan in the Bendix building out of lots of organza and tool. Then Jennifer has designed clothing, which are towards the bathing suit type based on Mostly one of the one of the pieces that's at the hammer, the piece called Silver Hat, is the sort of main piece she was working off of. But she's made these amazing clothes. And then Emily has wrangled dancers together. There's going to be five dancers. There's a DJ. And we're, there's going to be a kind of a fashion show slash dance performance around the pool, not in the pool, around this fabric pool. Then after the performance for the following month, then there'll be a video projection of the of the performance behind the pool and um, some other things going on, some other car wash clothing, and um, and there you have it. So it's a ambitious piece for us, and we're heading out to um, we'll be out there for a couple of weeks working on it, and um, can't wait. In addition to links to the show at the Hammer and the ICALA, we will have links at manpodcast.com to to that project too, to, to that project at Joan. Beverly Sims, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great talking to you. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition in relation to power, politically engaged works from the collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
Welcome back. Next up, one of the shows of the season, Rubens Picturing Antiquity at the Getty Villa. My guest is Jeffrey Spear, who, along with Antti Woolett and Davide Gasparotto, is one of the show's co-curators. The exhibition looks at how Rubens' work was informed by classical antiquity. Spear wrote for the catalog about Rubens' collection of and interest in gems. The exhibition is on view through January 24th. The catalog is terrific, a really fun read, and was published by the Getty. Amazon and IndieBound each offer it for $40. Jeffrey Spear, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How do we define gems in the context of Rubens's time, which I guess is to ask what was a gem and how was it more, you know, today we think of like the Hope Diamond. How is, how is what Rubens is thinking of a gem something broader and more specific than that? Yes, I don't think he's thinking of diamonds. I mean, we've known diamonds, but it's not the precious gems that we wear as jewelry, but semi-precious gems of chalcedony and garnet and materials like that that were engraved by hand by ancient artists. But it was a technique that was long known in the ancient world, but in the Greek and Roman time, it was very popular. There are many, many thousands that survive, and they were avidly collected. Uh, in the Renaissance and in the 17th century in Rubens' time. So how did Rubens come to know initially other people's private collections? And then what did he do once he kind of found that he was fascinated by them? You have to look at Rubens in his circle of intellectual peers at the time. He was educated, you know, highly educated in classical tradition, Greek and Latin and ancient history, which had developed in the 15th and 16th centuries. And part of that was collecting these. So many, many individuals he knew collected coins, especially coins survive in great numbers. And they told everybody what people looked like. You could tell what the who the emperors were because you had a coin with the name on it. And that's how we're able to identify ancient sculpture. Gems were a little rarer and a little more valuable. They didn't usually have inscriptions telling you what they are, but they, they're usually very beautiful. They're like miniature sculptural reliefs you would take uh, they're carved in uh, what they call intaglio and you make an impression in wax to see what they look like and this impressed uh, many of the collectors lots of images of uh, portraits or mythological images or historical images and there were many collectors around uh, including very wealthy aristocratic collectors especially in italy and is that where rubens first came to to see these well, I think he, even in the in the lowlands, he would have seen them. There were a couple of famous collectors at the time. There was someone who was named Gorleus. He's the Latin name Gorleus, who had many gems. And his was one of the first books that illustrated his collection. Gem books were not very common. For some reason, those lag behind coins. They're already books of many, many coins by beginning of the 16th century, but not gems. But Rubens probably would have known that collection. He corresponded with people who knew gems. But it's really when he got to Italy. You know, he went to Italy as a young man in 1600 and in the service of Mantua the Gonzagas, who had a big collection also. But he toured uh, all over Italy and was, was quite interested in gems and saw them. Another uh, big collection was he didn't meet Fulvio Orsini, who was the famous antiquary and librarian to the Farnese family in Rome, who had also published a book that included gems. He was able to see those. And we know from his letters, and we have wonderful letters between Rubens and his 
other scholarly friends describing gems and exchanging impressions made from the gems, casts of the gems. I don't want to jump too far ahead in the story, but just to establish the extent of Rubens's interest in gems, he ends up building a collection. What do we know about his collection of gems? Because he was quite a collector himself. He bought a lot of coins, gems, sculpture while he was in Italy and continued to do so after his return from Antwerp. We know something about them. There are surviving inventories or mentions in the letters that we can reconstruct somewhat. He sold his collection to the Duke of Buckingham in England, and there's an inventory of some of those, and he kept some after that. And there's another inventory at the time when his son Albert died who inherited them. So we know something about them. And what we try to do this exhibition is reconstruct some of his collection because we can trace a few things. Well, let's jump into some of the links that the exhibition makes and that the catalog makes between gems that Rubens clearly knew and artworks, drawings, paintings, and the like that he made. What One of the gems that Rubens came to know is known to us now as the Gemma Tiberiana, it's the largest surviving Roman cameo. I guess first, what is a cameo? And then how did Rubens come to know this piece? Oh, yes, I should have mentioned cameos. Cameos are also, it's the same as in modern times. A cameo is a stone that's been cut in relief rather than in reverse, in intaglio, usually using different the natural layers of an banded agate. Usually it's a white and brown and blue and very skillfully carved. So it's a low relief and utilizing different colors with figures standing out. These are even rarer than the normal gems that, that Rubens collected and they were quite expensive. There were some large collections of these in Italy as early as the 15th century. But the one you mentioned, the Gemma Tiberiana, is also known as the Grand Comédie de France because it's one of the great treasures now in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. This had been in a church treasury, in the, in the treasure of Saint-Chapelle in Paris, all through the Middle Ages. We don't know where it came from, whether it was... It may have been preserved since antiquity in the, in the church treasury. But one of uh, Peresque's correspondents, these scholarly friends of his whose name is Nicolas-Claude Fabry de Paresque, lived in Aix-en-Provence, found it, he rediscovered it in the, in the church treasury and was very excited about it. It's a very large cameo. It's, you know, it's over a foot tall. It's 12 inches long. It's about the size of a piece of paper, to give people an idea. Yeah, a little bit bigger, bigger than you, which is very large for a carved gem. And it shows, or Peresque recognized what it was, it shows all of these figures in several registers, you know, seated figures and Roman garb. And at the bottom there, there are captives. And at the top, some people are ascending up to heaven, one on a, on a winged horse and another's being held by some floating figure. But because of Peresque's classical training and his knowledge of ancient coins, he's able to identify all these people. He recognizes that this is the Emperor Tiberius, and up, uh, above is the deified late Emperor Augustus and various members of the uh, royal family. So, you know, he recognizes how important this thing is and, and, and tells all of his friends. There are letters all over, going to Italy, going off to uh, the Netherlands. And he learns that Rubens, whom he, I don't think he has met, but he knows of him, and they, there is a, they probably did correspond earlier, 
But he knows that Rubens has a drawing of another big gem, which is the one that's now in Vienna. There's another one with imperial families. And he asks him for if he could borrow the, his drawing because he wants to do a book. And then the two men strike up this friendship and um, decide they want to do a big book on the gems and cameos in the collections, the great collections of the world, many of which are Rubens. So that's how it starts. And they meet up together. And uh, I think Rubens is in Paris in 1622 to do a commission for Maria de' Medici. And the two men meet and, and have plans. And for the next few years are, are corresponding about you know, preparing drawings, preparing engravings. That's how we know some of Rubens' pieces, because either drawings or engravings for the book survive. But unfortunately, the book was never completed. Your exhibition includes Rubens's painting of the Gemma Tiberiana that dates to the early to mid-1620s. What do we know or what do you think about why he wanted to, to paint it? And it must be said, paint it fairly faithfully, right down to the browns. Oh, yes. It's very unusual for Rubens because he didn't like doing things to be exact copies. You know, he liked to be very free. So if this was for himself, he would not have done it this way. It was for Peresque, who begged Rubens to do this big painting for him to hang in his study, where it would hang next to another big cameo painting he already owned. And uh, we do have the letters, so we know all about it. And in his typical press, he keeps uh, bothering Rubens, like, is it finished yet? Can you, can you, can you get this done? And eventually it does get sent to uh, Peresque, and he's very delighted with it, and he tells his friends. But it really was at the request of uh, Peresque and a, a kindness of Rubens. We've talked a little bit about this kind of nexus of gem drawing engraving and kind of how that worked. There's a great example of the triumph of Licinius in the catalog and in the show. The triumph of Licinius is a cameo that Rubens himself owned. So Rubens has this thing. What happens next? Well, this is a good example of what they were doing, what he was doing with Peres, trying to get these things published. And they envisioned this beautiful book. We know Rubens owned this cameo. There are letters interpreting who this might be. They discuss who is this emperor. It's a very complex scene. And even today, there's debate about what date this is and who it is. But they, in fact, they, they didn't call it Lessinius. They called it, they thought it was probably an earlier emperor. But we have in the exhibition, unfortunately, we couldn't get the cameo. It is too fragile to travel. But we have a beautiful drawing of it that Rubens did and the preparatory engraving for it side by side, just to show how this project would have progressed. And we know they corresponded about the state of the, the project. This one isn't as faithful. I think it's a little, it's a little free. Yeah, that's a good question. I think they're not quite as faithful. Uh, Especially by the time we get to the engraving. Yeah, well, yes, then it goes through someone else. But even in the engravings, you can see it's a Rubens. You can always sort of tell his style. So there is something of the style, I think, even in these. Uh, I think he's trying to be fairly accurate, but he can't help himself, and he elaborates a bit. I also wanted to bring up an example that's in in the catalog and in, in your essay. It's not in the show because it's so kind of spectacular. In 1619, while Rubens is in Paris, he purchased an enormous vase that is now at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. What does the vase show, what is on it, as it were, 
And then how does Rubens jump off from it? Yes, that's another, unfortunately, that is also a very fragile piece. It's an enormous block, well, enormous. It's, it's quite a large, it's like a large cup in your hand carved out of solid agate. A very fragile thing. This uh, agate vase is quite remarkable. It's carved in high relief all around on each side, like as if handles. There's a facing head of the horned Pan, the god Pan. It's very goat-looking, mustached, smiling. It's really a, a very striking image. And all around the body are uh, vine leaves and grapes. So it's it's alluding to Dionysiac imagery of wine and pan as a accompanying Dionysus. And Rubens loved this. He, paid, he found it in a market in Paris and, and uh, paid an enormous sum for it. But we see how it's, you know, it certainly influenced him. This is how gems did influence him. He, saw, he found many images on them. Sometimes it was a single image, sometimes it was a composition or a mythological theme, but he loved these pan heads and they recur in his paintings several times. We have one in the show, there's one version in Munich and we have another of a facing pan holding these grapes, just as you'd see on this vase. So I think it's one of these striking instances of how Rubens was inspired by these carved stone objects, and uh, but transforms them into his paintings. The way the head of Pan is tilted forward on the vase and also in Rubens's painting makes the link not only unmistakable, but also kind of tips us to what one of the reasons why that bit of imagery caught his attention, that, 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 that tip of the head, the, the chin tucked into the god's upper torso, as if he's kind of, I don't know, squelching a wine burp or something. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, no, we see that a lot in Rubens' works. He, he finds things in ancient compositions, whether it's statuary or the gems, and he'll, he'll take that pose and he'll put it somewhere else. He'll stick it into a, a religious painting. It, you know, he, he just was inspired by these, you know, how ancient artists composed their works. So he would often do this. And he will often do it with his most important patrons. And and actually, what you what you're saying is reminding me of the end of your essay, that you know, with portraits of you know a de Medici or or a king, he will find an appropriate quotation, visual quotation, and carry it forward. Yes, yes, no, that's right. And and, and into very elaborate uh, compositions, this enormous set of compositions from Maria de Medici in Paris. That, drew on quite a lot of the imagery that he finds on gems and coins, especially the imperial triumphs. And that, again, is one of the big parts of our exhibition, how he uses this sort of imagery of victory for the emperor to praise his patrons, the Cardinal Infante of Spain or Marie de Medici. These become the equivalent of Roman emperors and empresses. Yes, reminds me of Mary Beard's recent book, which Dr. Beard discussed on the show a few weeks ago. We'll have a link to that episode on our, on the show page for this one on manpodcast.com. Jeffrey Spear, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.